0: gut a deer with a dull knife. We all know how much that sucks. So um, take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics what's up everybody hopefully you guys have enjoyed this week you're getting ready to enjoy a beautiful weekend wherever you're at with family or maybe by yourself in the turkey woods i have exactly one week from today until my turkey season kicks off and for the most part i think it's only going to be three days i'm pulling my daughter out of school on Friday and me and her are going to go on a little bit of a, a daddy daughter Turkey hunt. Uh, I'm just going to focus on her doing what she wants. If she gets cold or she wants to move, we're going to move no pressure. My goal is actually just to try to get a, a, a Tom to respond to us in the woods. And really that's all I want. And maybe even a second level of that goal is to Uh, have one close enough to see it strutting Uh, and then the third goal would be to try to get one close enough to where I can shoot it. Um, She's just she's eight years old and I know there are some eight-year-olds who are big enough to hold a a gun and shoot it. I feel like she's just a little too small quite yet to uh, even on a, on a tripod to uh, manage a firearm. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to let her sit close to me. I'm going to uh, buy her some of those uh, like headphones that you can put over your ears so that the shotgun blast may not, uh, um, may not hurt i guess hurt her ears or damage her ears but really this whole weekend is just me and her um i just another way to connect with one of my children is to get them outside and do something that i love and hopefully she'll be able to see my excitement and my passion for the outdoors and uh it might hook her and then she'll want to come with me to check trail cameras and to do all these other things outside Uh, and uh, ultimately that's the goal is just to get her involved in my lifestyle and uh, one of the benefits of that is if I am able to take one of the kids with me it's less stress at home I can hunt more I can hunt with my kids and uh, I don't know and that sounds like a win-win situation to me so that's what's happening in my world Um, this podcast today I don't really know how to describe it, right? I mean, my analytics say that you guys love to listen to podcasts about big bucks and strategy and how to kill deer and and, and all the these amazing adventures in the backcountry. That's what my analytics says. Typically, these type of podcasts that you're going to listen to today don't perform well. And I'm not sure why that is because this episode, I'm not going to lie, it's fucking awesome if you ask me. It's about a guy, Jared frazier who is currently the executive director of 2% for conservation and his his life basically, his introduction into the outdoors. Um he comes from a family of people who put others before themselves. Right. And he talks about that his entire life growing up, his parents and his family helped others. That was their main goal, basically just helping others. And they sacrificed the um, the the income with major jobs and, and all that kind of stuff to do one thing. And that was help others. And that is kind of like the foundation for where he's kind of set the foundation of where he's at today as the head of a conservation organization. And do me a favor and just listen to it, right? It is, it's, there's a, there's a message behind that this, and that is people, even if you're a one person can do great things uh, in, in the outdoors, in the passion. And, and as you'll hear him say, um, it was, his, his path was almost laid before him. All he had to do was walk down it. And, uh, although sometimes it didn't seem like it right when, you know, he leaves the home at 16 and, and has to go move in with an old lady and <laughs> like just some crazy stories along the way. It, 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 he knew what he wanted to do. And his parents helped build that, um, kind of set that example with him. And, uh, dude, I'm telling you right now, it's just a, an awesome story an awesome episode. It's almost like a hunter profile, but way deeper than that. So hopefully you guys enjoy this. Um, I know I enjoyed this episode. I know that, uh, Poor planning on my part because this could have easily been a two-hour, uh, a two-hour podcast. We sh- we cut it down to one, and uh, it's just a, a again a, a really cool episode. But as always, we got to do a commercial real quick uh, before we get into the uh, podcast. We need to check check out uh, a couple commercials, and the first one is Lone Wolf, uh, Lone Wolf portable tree stands, lonewolfhuntinggear.com. I think no wait, that's not it. Lone Wolf. Yeah, lone wolf. Lone Wolf. What is it? I'm such a dumbass. It is lonewolfhuntingproducts.com. And 13 what is it like now? 14 or 15 years I've been using these tree stands and four sticks. And it's like a it's like an appendage for me, to be honest with you. It's it's a part of me. I can walk in the woods. I know how to use them. I know where I need to be, not in a straight tree, but in any tree. Right, Whether it's a, a thin tree, whether it's a big tree, whether it's a, a gnarly tree, whether it leans to the left, leans to the right, I know how to get that tree stand up in that spot because I know deer movement works through this terrain in some way, shape, or form, and I don't need to be close enough I need to be in the right spot. And that's what Lone Wolf uh, Hang Ons and and Sticks allows me to do. And I'm telling you right now, if you've never messed with one and you're hesitant about buying one, uh, I'll tell you this two things. Number one, borrow one from a buddy and use it. It'll change your, it'll, it'll change your, idea of mobile hunting the second would be use the discount code and that is 9fc21 9fc21 and you're going to save fifty dollars off of all orders over 200 bucks so you buy a tree stand it's basically 20 percent off you uh buy a set of sticks it's 25 off something around there and uh, it's a win-win situation guys so uh and then they have climbers and they have a different variety if you want a small platform or a, a big platform they have options so uh lonewolfhuntingproducts.com and the perfect pair uh, pairing like uh, a steak and a fine wine would be Ozonics, right? And again, this is a product that if you have a friend who is willing to loan out an Ozonics for you to take into the timber with you or take on a hunt with you, I strongly recommend getting one in your hands during a hunt because it took me an in the tree stand experience to have this, what they call an aha moment, right? This moment where it's just like, Holy shit, this thing works. And yes, they pay me to say it. You guys don't have to believe believe me, but I'm telling you right now, uh it is a product that works awesome in the stand and even better out of the stand. So when you are when you get out of the hunt, your your you know, your uh hunting your hunting gear, your camo, uh it's all saturated with scent hang it up in their dry wash bag or their locker and uh, run a cycle. And then the next time you go into the timber, I, I say this, it makes you feel like you're invisible. Your access route, if you have a great access route to your tree stand location, on top of that with um, smelling scent-free from the Ozonics dry wash cycle, dude, I'm telling you, I don't even know what to say. It, it, it's, it's money. So go check out OzonicsHunting.com and uh, take a look at that there is a discount code here if you buy a unit online use the discount code NFC21 NFC21 and uh, you'll be able to get a free dry wash bag with your purchase of a unit there commercials are done Make sure you're subscribed to the Nine Finger Chronicles on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. The Sportsman's Nation on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, and uh, follow on Instagram and Facebook. And let's get into today's episode with Jared Fraser. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, the man from Two Percent for Conservation, Jared Fraser. How are we doing, man?
1: Doing fairly well.
0: Good deal, good deal. So, I, I asked this question, and I know you live in a different part of the the country than I do, uh, because in Iowa, we really only have two, I guess you want to call it big game seasons, even even though the a turkey is not necessarily a big game, but we have turkey season and we have deer season. And we got some other things that you could throw in there. So, are you a turkey guy or not?
1: Uh, you know, if it's an on-off switch, it's it's uh, it's not, but only because I've typically been very busy during traditional turkey season. We, we have spring and fall turkey here out in Montana, um, but I did grow up, you know, every spring uh, hunting turkeys, you know, with my dad and my grandpa um, and was just big on it then. I still love it. Uh, it's just really hard in the, in, in what I do for work, you know, spring is a very, very busy time of year. So it's, it's kept me from, from being able to dedicate the time to get back into it. But I grew up loving it. And in fact, one of my top five hunting memories was playing around, uh, with a slate with my grandpa when I was just a kid, uh, too young to hunt and we're hiding behind a hay bale. And we started trying to play songs. Uh, on the, like I was trying to do old McDonald and one of the biggest, biggest toms I've ever seen, he was just dragging when he came in, he was so pissed about old McDonald. Uh, my grandpa got him, and it's, it's still one of my most cherished memories. And anytime I get to see my grandpa, when I travel back to Wisconsin, we end up shooting the shit about it.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. Maybe nursery rhymes are the key. Like maybe that's the hunting strategy. Everybody has it wrong and they, And if you just play a nursery rhyme on your slate call, it'll bring them right in.
1: Start with the little bunny foo foo, and right. you know, right. Once you get up to that old McDonald's range, they're they're gonna be done.
0: Just open the back of your truck, and they'll jump right in. <laughs> <laughs> so you're from Wisconsin originally. Yeah. Okay. So did you come from that? Like when I think of Wisconsin, I think of a state that probably has. I want I'll say top three hunting tradition states in at least the Midwest, maybe not the South, but at least the Midwest. Uh, I just think a, a deep hunting tradition. Did you come from that tradition?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and deep, uh, real deep. I mean, uh, people in, in my, uh, ancestry who were trappers and stuff by trade and, you know, up in Canada and eventually made their way down to the, down to the States. And, uh, as a kid, I mean, it, it started when I was two months old um, out ice fishing. My parents drug a hole or, or drilled a hole uh, about six inches deep and plopped me in it so that they could chase tip-ups uh, unencumbered. <laughs> by it. So, you know, it started super early for me. And uh, there were, I mean, there were gaps in uh, my family. They have a five generation now over hundred year old plumbing business in Northern Wisconsin. And, and, uh, so, you know, the business would take over from time to time, but there is a strong, strong outdoor heritage in the family. My dad was kind of taught, you know, by his dad and his grandpa, but especially his uncle. Um, so my great uncle, and I was fortunate, uh, to get instruction from all of them at different points. My great grandpa didn't die till I was 11. And the first muskie I ever saw get Bonked with a <laughs> with a trucker tire checker <laughs> was by him when he was in his late 80s. So, um, you know, it was it, it was everything that we did growing up. Um, ev- every hike was an education. Um, you know, bare ground tracking uh, where you can find grubs. You know, as parasites inside of stems of different uh, plants and stuff, and use them for fishing uh how to cook all these different, you know, weird meats and stuff that nowadays it, it it turns into a whole YouTube series when someone, you know, eats something that's not a traditional big game animal. Right. Uh but we were omnivores of the landscape, basically.
0: So you were not only the hunter, but you were the gatherer as well.
1: Yeah. 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 we did, we did a lot of that. Uh blackberries, blueberries, uh mushrooms Uh actually with the mushrooms, it was eh, there's not too many mushrooms you can go after in northern Wisconsin uh safely. So just want to be real real clear with that. (laughs) I
0: I tell you You this though, my my mushroom game has expanded in the past, I want to say, three years. You know, I've I've expanded into the hen of the woods, the pheasant backs, you know, not just your typical morels. And that's one thing that I'm a little jealous of because I I want I wish I had more time to actually not only hunt, but do the, the foraging side of it, identify plants that you could throw in a salad or more mushrooms or berries or, you know, yeah, all that landscape stuff.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the term they use is the terroir, you know, you, you're eating everything that's that the food you eat, you know, the animals you eat, they were, they were eating to some yeah. respect and we did a lot of that, um, and, and I didn't realize that that was abnormal, you know, or, or that I was really lucky mm-hmm. uh, to, to have that kind of upbringing. My dad, for the most part, was really around, um, even though he would he was doing all kinds of things, you know, to to try to afford to, to raise us. I'm, I'm the oldest of five. Um, and for many years, my parents were well below the poverty line because they were doing essentially charity work, working with kids and stuff. Uh, so he would he would trap. He would um, collect deer hides. He, he was reselling deer hides. If you've never smelled the back of a truck <laughs> filled, with, and, and by that I mean like a U-Haul uh, filled to the brim with untanned deer hides that could be all different ages <laughs> um, and quality, uh, y- you've you've had a, a, a much easier life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, yeah uh, we, we learned all kinds of stuff, so it, it was deeply ingrained in me, but it didn't, um, it didn't stick with me, uh, for, for my whole, uh, life. Uh, yeah. there was a period from age 16 to 24 where I didn't hunt at all, yeah. uh, which is a long time, you know, eight years. Um, but the reason was, as I was moving around, uh, I moved out when I was 16 and, you know, living in other places. I didn't have a place to go. Um, or I couldn't afford an out of state or out of country hunting license. So there was a long period where I might fish once or twice a year. Um, but that was also really formative to understand how the world was, you know, outside of this tiny, tiny little fishbowl we call the hunting world, uh, that often can feel, you know, really big, but you know, anymore, we realize just how small we are in comparison yeah. to, the, to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. So I want to ask this, you could this question, because I, I, I think it's going to give us a, a deeper insight to actually who you are and why conservation is important to you. You mentioned that your your folks were into this charitable lifestyle, right, working mm-hmm. for other people. Um, and then basically doing whatever they could to survive with the main focus of, you know, giving back to other people. Um, yeah. What, like, what was that lifestyle like? What were they passionate about? What were they giving back to?
1: So my mom was a missionary kid. Uh, she grew up in South America. Uh, my grandparents worked with the evangelical mission group. Uh, that, that actually was a another generation deep, uh, with my great grandparents on that side, they, they were some of the first, uh, U S missionaries in South America, um, you know, around world war two and stuff. Uh, but that was kind of her background with it, with my dad. Uh, he had had a pretty rough childhood and, and really rough teen life. Uh, so he wanted to work with teenagers uh, that were, you know, dealing with substance issues and, and dealing with abuse at home and a lot of the things uh, that had been a part of his community and, and life growing up. So when I was uh, age one to five, they were they were working with basically in a community, this tiny little town called Winter, Wisconsin. So I was I was born in in a in a town you know with <laughs> with the same name of one of my favorite seasons. Um, and yes, it is cold there a lot, uh, but tiny, tiny town and our house was always full of teenagers, just always full. Uh, and they were always feeding them, even though they hardly had enough money to take care of us. And so he was hunting and fishing, you know, as much as he could, uh, to try to keep food in the house. And I have memories of kids coming over in the middle of the night, just bloodied, by their parents you know and, and this is from again pre-age five and I can still remember the looks on their faces and uh, if their moms had also been beat up you know them coming over um, my dad was also an EMT at the time so you know seeing seeing a lot of those things was really formative for me on just you know you take care of people who can't take care of themselves yeah that was that was a big thing that wasn't told to me expressly or at least I don't have memory of it but it was shown to me. Um, ad ad nauseum.
0: <laughs> yeah, that must have been pretty. Um, like, I have a couple memories in my life that just kind of are ingrained, like I mean, ironed into my uh, my brain that I will never forget from an early, like uh, an early age. Uh, and I, I, I must say, like that kind of life, seeing those, that kind of physical abuse, must like just like really stuck with you.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I still have very vivid memory memories about it. Sometimes I have dreams about it still. Um, but it, it definitely stuck with me. And, and, and then they moved from there, uh, to Southern Wisconsin for a bit and they were working at a kid's camp. So I, I got to spend all my time playing in the creeks, catching scuds, uh, you know, the little shrimp, uh, little freshwater shrimp and stuff and yep. going after sculpting the little, little, you know, uh, nasty looking rocket fish kind of things. Um, that's where I went on my first Turkey hunts. That's where, uh, shot my first squirrel and stuff. Um, you know, but in that case we were, I was a kid living at a kid's camp, Yeah. you know, uh, outdoors. So the archery equipment, I always had access to it. Yeah. Um, you know the the climbing walls that were, were being started and stuff had access to all of that. So it, it really was a wild childhood. I was also homeschooled, yeah, uh, except for eighth and ninth grade. So uh, when we moved up to northern Wisconsin, uh, where my family is originally from, uh, there you know the outdoors were my classroom in many many ways. Yeah, and uh, my you know my friends because we lived out in the middle of nowhere, uh, most of who I would call my, you know, call friends of mine, uh, were dead writers (laughs) because there weren't that many folks to, to hang out with, uh, in my age group, I I did end up making a few friends who love some of the same outdoor stuff, you know, getting in trouble, rebuilding three wheelers and getting stuck out in the middle of the woods or flying off jumps when you're pulling a (laughs) snowboard, (laughs) something on, on the ice, you know, and breaking bones and stuff, um, you know, got all of that, but Uh, that early, early childhood of just seeing my, you know, by example, my parents give and then DIY their life so that they could give some more Yeah, was just that I can't put a figure on it for how important it was.
0: So some people would look at that and say, Oh man, that life has just like a, a big lack of stability. Did you ever feel like your life in some way was out of control or was that all you knew?
1: I was all I knew. Um, when I when I became a teenager, that's when I started to notice it. But, but by that point, uh, my dad had a, you know, big air quotes, normal job. He was becoming a plumber, you know, going into the family trade and stuff. Yep. Uh, and, you know, that whole season of life was kind of over. Uh, my two youngest siblings were born when we were up there in that transition uh, to a more normal, you know, have a mortgage kind of American lifestyle. Yep. Um, and I, I, that may have played a part into me, you know, wanting to move out and go get away from that rigidity of a nine to five. Yeah. Um, you know, I lived out of my car for a bit. I lived with a 65 year old widow. Uh, she like housed me, uh, for that first job. Uh, when I moved out, uh, I went and worked at camps again, uh, up, up through my early twenties. I traveled the world. Uh, you know, for work. I've, I've been lots and lots of places, but I've honestly been very few places for vacation. Yeah. So, you know, that, that lifestyle, I just kind of took it and ran with it in many ways. And it took until I was about 30 to understand that that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, that I was seeking that, um, it wasn't a vagabond life, but that, uh, a bit more raw and, and in touch with your day to day, uh, you know, uh, sustenance for living kind of
0: life. So that, and how confusing was that for you as a 16 year old? Because if you were to take me out of my home at 16 years old, I would have been dead. Like I was not, my brain did not work back then. (laughs) Like, I I don't know any other way to say it. I was not, I was, I was probably incapable of taking care of myself even as a 16 year old.
1: Well, and I had help. Yeah. Um, it, that first job, you know, out of the house and it, I, I turned 17, like a couple months later. Yeah. Um, but you know, that first job was working for a long time family friend. Um, and, and it involved traveling all over the U S and Europe, uh, and a little bit of Canada. Um, so I did have, you know, some rains there, but my pay at the time was $92 every two weeks. Jesus. Um, because it was an internship technically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, while I was living out of my car, I ended up moving out of the, the widow's house cause she had a cat I was allergic to and she refused uh, <laughs> to have another part of the house and I was just dying. Um, the, the cat was older than me. The yeah. cat was 18. <laughs> so I, I ended up going and living out of my car for a couple of weeks Um, and, and then, you know, ended up living with some other folks and this whole floating thing. I just, there were people who cared about me and I was real fortunate with that. Yeah. Uh, But also I was a firstborn and firstborns. We got this thing where we just, there's a responsibility shtick We can't drop. Like even when we're being complete knuckleheads, we're probably the ones reeling it back a little bit, you know, like, like when we'd be pulling someone through the woods behind a snowmobile you know, going sixty miles an hour on cross country skis. All each level of that was stupid. Yeah. Um, you know, at night. Uh, but I'd be the one going, hey guys, maybe let's just go to fifty, you know. So there there was there was that, you know, thing was always there and that protected a bit. But also there were folks who were genuinely looking in on me, even though this was back when like I didn't even have a cell phone for a good chunk of this. Yeah. So folks wouldn't hear from me for like two months at a time, which anymore is just unheard of
0: yeah and, and your parents were, were they okay with you leaving the house that early
1: uh i had i had become kind of calcitrant in my teen angst <laughs> so to some degree there was some relief i think i got you uh when i uh and and for my siblings i know there was relief because i left and i realized when i was two hours away i'd forgotten my laptop cord And turned around and drove back and all my stuff was out of my room and my brother's stuff was all
0: (laughs) just like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, oh, guess I don't live here anymore. Right.
0: Right. right. So I want to talk about this period of time because it it sounds like it was a little bit financially motivated, like motivated to where you you didn't hunt as much. Uh, in this eighteen to you know mid twenties time frame, um, was it a hundred percent financial why you didn't hunt, or were there other reasons why you decided not to continue the the hunting tradition, the fishing outdoor tradition?
1: Yeah, so you know I I think about my childhood as as having this absolute wealth of information and opportunity when it came to hunting and fishing, not wealth of money the wealth of, 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 you know, the outdoors. And you think about someone who comes from real, you know, financial wealth, those kids who leave will go and take risks and go, you know, live on the streets for a bit because they know there's always a safety net. Right. That they can always go back to it because, you know, mom or dad is, is gonna, you know, make, make their, their, um, you know, getting back into that totally possible, you know, Oh, you need a car? Here's a car. Um, you need a, a place to, to rent? Here's, you know, come come live in this place. You know, they, they've got those means. And so, you know, you feel like you can go and take those risks because of that security. To some degree, that was me with the outdoors. I knew the moment I wanted to get back into it, I just had to go back to mom and dad. And I could go fishing that afternoon and go catch a muskie. Um, or if I wanted to hunt, you know, I just had to get my Wisconsin residency again. And I could go, you know, hunting all, all season, you know, every season or trapping or whatever. So there was that sitting in the background, that, that security net. But the thing that, that really drove it was at first the financial, cause I did want, you know, I, I wanted that, uh, that insurance that a full freezer provides, but the reality was I didn't even own a freezer. Yeah. You know, uh, what, what would I do if I, if I shot something or if I, I got something. Now the skills did come, you know, come come to play for me from time to time. Someone would be like, "Hey, I road killed a deer. Here it is. What what should we do with it?" I'm like, well, first off, I think it's illegal in this state to pick up roadkill, but since it's already in the house, <laughs> you know, and, and that thing would be in in the top part of our tiny little apartment freezer real quick. Or one time, I uh, inadvertently uh, traded a mattress for uh, a, a pig. Um, with the Hutterite colony out here. And, and when they said, yeah, we'll trade for some, for some pig, I thought they were going to like, you know, give me a 80 pounds of of pork. No,
0: they gave me the pig.
1: pig. Uh, and it was at six in the morning and this pig dressed was over 200 pounds and I had to be at work at nine. And so I'm on the kitchen floor in my little apartment in Great Falls, uh, basically breaking down a pig the way I would break down a deer or something else and trying to cram it into every freezer <laughs> in the neighborhood before I had to head to work. That's funny. Um, you know, it's stuff like that would come up and, and keep me tied to it. I also taught outdoor education for a big chunk of this time period, um, at camps or retreat centers or outdoor education centers, which is like, you know, teaching plant ID or, um, you know, animal tracks, how to start a fire, wilderness survival, rock climbing, yeah, things like that. Uh, taking folks on kayaking trips, teaching them how to fish. So I wasn't totally disconnected from it, but I was disconnected from it as a personal activity. It's what I did for work. Gotcha. So you know that that played into it to to a large degree too.
0: Okay. So then we get into that. You know that time frame ends right what picked up what shot you back into the woods back into the 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 hunting the fishing uh after that period of time
1: uh getting married was a a, a big part of it um and then an unexpected first baby okay uh, you know and realizing i am not making a whole lot of money right now and i need to provide and I need to get serious. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was the first uh, hunt I went on again after this long hiatus uh, that I went along with. Uh, I wasn't a, a Wisconsin resident, but uh, my wife was at the time. Uh, we went and whitetail hunted while she was pregnant with our first. So that that was the big catalyst was... I got to be able to put some food in the freezer because it's going to take me a couple years to build a career to put money, you know, in the account to buy to put food on the freezer. And there's, you know, the the, the autonomy that my family grew up with in some degree. And my, you know, if my parents listen to this, they'll be like, no, there are all these people who helped us, which there were. I mean, there were people that we called grandpa and grandma who were not grandparents, but were always, you know, stopping by with dinner and stuff when I was really little. Um, But, you know, there was some autonomy to be able to have a garden, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to raise like we raised pigs and chickens and rabbits and ducks. Um, You know, we had neighbors who would give us beef and stuff and trade for work. Um, And then, of course, all the hunting and fishing that put wild game on our table year round. Um, That is nearly impossible for someone living out of an apartment. You you just can't. Yeah. You know if if you don't have land to work, or land that you are being given access to, living out of an apartment is very very hard. Um, you know it, it's really hard to do any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was it was a bit of a struggle getting back into it here in Montana, uh, because it's totally different. Um, the whitetails rarely act the same. We have places where they do act similar to the Midwest. But I mean, you don't talk about herd bucks in northern Wisconsin the way you do out here, where they'll actually be running like a harem of does, you know, during the rut. Yeah. Uh, way elk do. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't have that. And then uh, learning that mule deer are, you know, have one tenth the intelligence and they're the mule deer hunters going to be like, no, no, no. I promise you, they are so much dumber <laughs> <laughs> than, than the whitetails are. Yeah. Um, you know, learning that was a big boon to my success out here. <laughs> in that, you know, I didn't didn't need all this this extra, you know, play in the wind and all this other stuff, uh, to shoot a really dandy, you know, big Muley. Um, the elk hunting has been slow, uh, because I didn't really have anyone to teach me. I I learned like watching Randy Newberg on YouTube and and online. Yeah. Like that's that's been the extent of my elk education, despite a few, you know, elk hunts when I was a kid with my with my folks so the education's been slow but the impetus to to get it going was kids yeah and and anymore when i meet other folks who started back up again i I hear that to be a similar thing for them
0: yeah so i want to kind of make one thing clear right a lot of people out there will will say things like well first and foremost i hunt for the meat but Mm. like but i also want to shoot uh you know, mature buck or I want to, you know, I want to, yeah. Cool. So in my opinion, yeah. those things do not go hand in hand. Right. You're you're I'd agree right. With you. yeah. So we're like, were you at that point just trying to fill the freezer by any means necessary? Any legal game was getting shot.
1: I'll show you the deer rep, you know, the buck racks. They, they, they tell that story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: They're, you know, they they're not, uh, they, you can almost take them in like every year that I've been here, you can set the rack from the year prior inside of the one, you know, from the most recent year, right. um, with a couple exceptions where I got lucky. I was, I was shooting does, uh, I, there was a property that would let me go and archery hunt does and that unit you could buy up to five doe tags. So, I mean, there was one night where two does came. Well, no, two days, two does came home from me, but one of them, a buddy had shot with his tag. Yeah. And then the next day I went out and got another. So, you know, ended up with three does in the freezer yeah. uh, over 24 hours. Yeah. Um, Man, While following the law, anyone from Montana is like, hey, you're not allowed to do the two tags in one day. I know. Yeah. Um. You know, back and bought it the next day at, at Sportsman's. But, um. you know, we were just fill in the freezer as, as best we could yeah. um, and as fast as we could because kids have this weird habit. They like to put stuff in their mouths
0: yeah, um, all the time.
1: So, all the time. Yeah.
0: So for you, hunting took on a different meaning than it did for me. Like I've, mm-hmm. I never, I've, I've never had uh or come from a family or I guess, I mean, I went through a struggle period in my life after my parents got divorced where both, My, you know, you take one income and now you divide it in half and now you have more expenses on each side of the family. And we were, we were dead broke for a, a, I don't know, a year or something until my dad started making some good money. And my mom started um, picking up some other jobs and things It's kind of settled down from that time frame, But I can remember, um, you know, getting, and my grandpa was a farmer, so we would get a lot of beef from, you know, we would get, uh, uh, food from my grandparents they would help out, you know, but that was that was two hours away so yeah it, I just like I see that's like a completely different lifestyle than what a normal hunter goes through right hunting hunting these days isn't for it is it is in a way for sustenance, but it's not life or death subsidence. does that make sense
1: yeah and and honestly any more in areas where you know, I've, now that I've lived in Montana, you know, over a decade, I've, I've gotten to watch favorite hunting spots absolutely fill up. Uh, I joked, you know, with family and friends like, yeah, we don't have the pumpkin forest here. Uh, but now what we have is, yeah, the pumpkin forest plus every dirt road has vehicles on it all day long trying to road hunt where that was not wasn't the case you know, virtually everywhere in the state, but now it, it, it very much is. So trying to do it affordably was a big thing that I've, I've been here for the transition for. It's a lot harder to do it cheaply out here because you, if you calculate all the gas you spend yeah. driving from one end of the state or the other, or um, you know, all the, all the time that you spend in the back country and all the food that you're eating back there and all the fuel you're burning up back there with your camp stoves and all the, you know, all these things, they add up. And you calculate that versus, you know, hitting hitting the, the discount meat section at the grocery store. Because, again, if you're doing this, you know, to be fiscally uh, conservative with your, with your food purchases, you're going to be hitting the discount meat section. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they the hunt, hunting is way more expensive yeah. uh, in, in many ways. So unless you have figured out a way to do it cheaply, um, you're not sustenance hunting here. Yeah, Uh, you know like like we were even a decade ago
0: yeah I want to take a a a sidestep out from this conversation and and go into something that you just said about lots of you know spots are filling up right Uh, lots of other hunters are in the picture now that potentially weren't is that because there's more you know like the trend everybody is hearing about is hunt the decline in hunters right and for the most part, public land, let's just say public land, uh, we'll use this example because I know access to private ground out west has gone away because of outfitters and leasing and all that stuff. But yeah. public land has relatively stayed somewhat the same uh, throughout, throughout the years. Why, like, why do you think you're running into more people out there now?
1: Well, there's been a big pivot in who those hunters are. Yeah. Uh, there, there are more uh, public land hunters in the percentage coming to Western states uh, because they're losing their private land opportunities in other states. Yeah. Uh, and we're losing private land opportunity. I mentioned that place where I got to shoot does. I'm not allowed to hunt there anymore. It's locked up with an outfitter now. Yeah. Uh, there was another one I hunted right after that. Locked up with an outfitter. Um, actually, there's four here in Montana that are now locked up with outfitters where I would have to pay 150 bucks to shoot a white-tailed doe. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, there are people who will do that, but it's not folks like me. You yeah. know, I I can't afford that. Um, that 150 bucks is going to buy my kids' school shoes and school supplies and yeah. stuff like you know, around the house and, and whatnot, you know, it's not, it's not going to go, it's not going to go for that experience for me to bring home 40 pounds of whitetail meat. So we have that going on. We also have, you know, there's talk of the decline of hunters, but actually the percentage of the population is what they're talking about more than anything. Um, And in some States, hunter recruitment is up. Like in Montana, hunter recruitment is way up way, way up, which is, which is a good thing. Um, personally, I I want more folks involved in it, especially folks who have traditionally been outside of hunting. I would love to see them be involved. Uh, and that's why I teach hunters ed. I'm a hunters ed instructor have been for, let me check my little card here, uh, since 2015. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a big part of who I am. I used to teach outdoor ed, especially, uh, I'd love teaching places, uh, or at places where the majority of the students were coming from inner city, you know, uh, showing people stars for the first time, um, showing people, you know, what a mud minnow looks like, or, you know, the different crustaceans and what they mean for the landscape and the rivers and stuff and learning how to track gear, showing them all of that still love doing that. Uh, what we have is a lack of habitat or lack of quality habitat anymore um and and i say that as across the west you know access to quality habitat for the average diy not pay-to-play hunter we might have all this public land but a lot of it just ain't great feed you know for for wildlife so what you're saying
0: is that the access You're you're talking about access, right? So it's not that the habitat necessarily has gone away, but the access to the habitat is in, is in decline.
1: It's a combination of the two. Okay. It's, it's, it's a combination. You know, you you look at Nevada with their cheatgrass issue. Uh, That's, that's a state that is, you know, used to have all this great feed and now it's covered by stuff that most wildlife can't eat. Yeah. You know um, when I, when I was down there, uh, two years ago, uh, I was down there with Sitka and Go Hunt. We were we were with the fraternity of Desert Bighorn putting in a, a water guzzler in the middle of the desert, which services hundreds of species. But you know, it's it's a Bighorn Desert organization. You know, Bighorn uh, Desert Bighorn Sheep organization that's putting them in. Totally volunteers. Totally volunteer funded too. Um, you know, we're putting this guzzler in, and I got to meet one of the first guys who started the organization way back in the day when they were bootlegging, uh, guzzlers in under the cover of nights, you know, losing mules on these three day long pack trips into the desert to put in these guzzlers. Um, he said, uh, he said, your generation is about to lose the battle that we lost, uh, with, with, you know, the weeds, you're going to be losing it to, um, to, to Russian olives. And, you know, anyone listening to this, they're like, what is Russian olive? And so it's a, it's a common, uh, landscaping tree used out here. That's not native. Um, if you've ever eaten a deer that ate a Russian olive, you know, that deer was being poisoned. <laughs> um, uh, but they would cheatgrass in Nevada. They've lost all this habitat. That state is mostly public land. Uh, but a lot of it just is not huntable the way it was either between the cheatgrass or all the feral horses, you know, yeah. just pushing everything. So we have a combination of those things. You're losing habitat that is, that is solid. You know, that's, that's privately owned, that's being worked by landowners who are working hard. We're losing access to that and we're losing, you know, quality habitat on public land, public lands as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Man, that's just a, a whole different dynamic than what I'm used to. I, you know what? I, I kind of take that back. Maybe I am used to it and I just don't know it Um, be, because I have lost private ground like iowa has little to no uh, public ground compared to the rest of the states right we're talking about two percent or under i think as far as public access uh for hunters right we we have a a smaller population than you know some of the other midwestern states that that are in in there but when it comes to access in, in the late 90s early 2000s i could knock on a door and for the most part i could probably get permission to hunt unless there was another serious hunter on there even if there was gun hunters, you know, I just say, hey, I'm a bow hunter. Yep, you're on. Turkey hunting. Yep, you're on. Yep. But over yep. over time, we we have the, and I, I put it up to the big buck craze, right? We got leasing now. We got outfitting now. We have um, uh, out of, uh, non-resident hunters coming into the state, buying up land, locking it up you know, uh, as well. So, you know, nobody's, nobody, nobody can hunt it. And it, that, that property at in some points will sit there during the hunting season un unhunted at all, which is probably good for the landowner, but, uh, bad for the local guys who got pushed out of it. Right. So, um, are, is that the, is that something that you're seeing out there too, is more people are going after the big bull or the big buck and less of the, you know, filling the freezer crowd?
1: Uh, we're seeing them go after a pseudo Western lifestyle. They're, they're moving, they're moving from all over, you know, and I'm saying this as someone who moved here too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I am that out of stater who came here and bought a house. Um, uh, we do have, I'm looking out my window right now. I, I live in town, but I do have a deer rub on the Aspen right outside my house right now. Um, and stepped in, you know, some deer shit while I was playing catch with the dog <laughs> in the backyard. But uh, I, I ain't hunting them here. Um, we have that, uh, but we also have, you know, we, we, we do have programs. There, there are solutions that have been put into place here in Montana to try to help the hunter. Uh, we have things called the Block Management Program, where a private landowner they get a kickback from the state for providing access to public hunters to their property. And there's lots of different rules that the private landowner can put in. They can dictate uh, what species you can hunt. They can dictate what parts of the season can be open, uh, when and where firearms are allowed, if, if, if at all, on their property. Um, all kinds of things. So we have this awesome program. But we also have a big, big, big economic driver in the whole leasing program and the the inch real estate. And so there's there's actually a group. They're called uh, United Property Owners of Montana, which look at their board or who their people are. A lot of them don't even live here. Um, But they fund trying to shut that thing down because they want to be leasing and they want larger and larger tracts of land for leasing. Um, they also, you know, want to bring back the private ownership of wildlife. So if wildlife's on your property, you do all the management decisions for it, not fishing game or biologists or anyone else. And they're actively going after it. So they, I mean, they'll actively go after people in the block management program. I've been at, at ranchers homes, Uh, a few of them that I hunt every year. And, and they said, yep, they came around this this year again and told me it'd be really worth my while if I got out of block management. Yeah. So we've got some of that thug stuff going on too. Yeah. Um, on this and, you know, they've got, they've got billboards up all over the state and they make it sound really wholesome what they're doing, what they're about. But the reality is, is they, they want to privatize hunting and, and, really capitalize off of something that's become much more popular yeah. over the last 50 years. We might have Hunter decline, but I mean, who would have thought we'd have hunting shows on major networks the way we do now. Right. Right.
0: Yep. So. Yep. And that's crazy. Cause I, um, I talked to a guy who, you know, I met him at a gas station and I had a doe. This was several years ago. I had a doe in the back of my, uh, back of my truck and, mm-hmm. uh, he noticed it. And I said, uh, the guy goes, Oh, you shot a doe with your bow. I'm like, yeah, I was getting gas. And he's like, uh, yeah, I used to hunt over there at that farm. There was probably, and it was um, like, Oh, you used to hunt on that before they, cause, uh, a well-known group of people, um, used to hunt, like hunt, they, they hunt there and it's owned by a, a really rich guy who's an out of stater or whatever. And, um, He's like, yeah, before they bought it, there was probably 20 plus 30 people who used to hunt there. They, they bought it. They kicked everybody out. Now you have all these people looking for other places to hunt. And, you know, some of those people just kind of hung it up, called it quits. And so he would, he was talking to me about that. And, uh, man, it was, uh. That that would suck. And, I, and I've been a part of it. However, I've been motivated to go and find new places to hunt. I've, I've never I've I've never wanted to hang it up. But but for every person that I talk to who lives out west, it just seems like there's so many more. There's so many layers to this public private hunting out there. You're always running into someone who doesn't want you on, you know, even near their property. I ran into a little bit of that myself uh when I was when I was hunting out west, and it just seems like the water is starting to get more muddy and more muddy and more muddy and more like money and greed it is starting to stir into the mix and uh like I'm trying to get as much hunt western hunting done as I possibly can so that I, you know, until my knees explode, right? And then I can't do it anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's just gnarly out there.
1: Now, thankfully, we do have, I mean, an obscene amount of public land out here. Right. And, and a big part of it is how physically capable you are. Um, but even that's, you know, being degraded. I, I work on multiple wildlife organization boards. So I'm, I'm privy to, and fortunate for this, privy to a lot of research. Right. on the effect of, you know, when we allow motorized vehicles into hunting areas. And there are guys who go, no, nah, you say this, but I get whenever you're, You're lucky. Because <laughs> yeah. the data says most of the time, most of the time, that is not the case. You know, they're pushing wildlife around. I've been on so many hunts where I've watched, you know, illegal uh, four-wheelers driving in and just this elk herd I've been on for a couple days gets pushed onto private. Yeah. You know, um, every, with the exception of last year, I have witnessed that every year on multiple parcels of land, only once have I had wolves mess up my hunt. But I have had uh, illegal uh, driving around mess up my hunt. Oh, I take that back. Last year it happened on a mule deer hunt. Uh, guys were driving down a road that they weren't supposed to be driving down, and pushed the pushed the herd before we could get in the stock. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm batting a thousand on that. So, (laughs) you know, we've, we've got, we've got so many layers to it and, and that's why it's just so important in my opinion for folks to get engaged and start learning. Don't, don't get into the, it's, it's, it feels good because when you, when you say it's a two sided thing, you know, it's this or it's that you feel good because it gives you somewhere to stand and then you can fight in the comments section on online forums or Facebook or something like that and think you're doing something. And the reality is it's a multifaceted thing and it changes even within regions of a state. The issues going on here in the Bozeman area with hunting and opportunity and wildlife and all of that are wildly different from where I hunt different parts of my year across the state. And in each of those spots, if the community is engaged, it tends to get taken care of and the hunting tends to improve. But if the community is disengaged, then it kind of goes to lowest common denominator fighting and, you know, hunters lose. We just lose. We're, we're not that big of an economic driver compared to the other
0: things at play. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy, man. So that's kind of a, a side conversation that we just kinda had. I, I wanna I wanna take a, a hard pivot now and get back to you, right? So, um now you 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 went into this uh kind of a brown it's down type of uh part in your life, fill the freezer, feed the family type deal. Um are you still in
1: the fill the freezer feed the family over the brown it's down that's something we used to say about fibs when i lived in wisconsin but (laughs) not not the fibs uh but you know their style of hunting (laughs) right
0: right so are you still like do you personally still like is your top and only priority to fill the freezer or have you kind of Taking a a little bit of step out of that and maybe you're kind of going after bucks or bulls or you know trying to do that that uh, uh mature buck thing or whatever
1: the amount of time i have to hunt really removes that going after only the the mature buck yeah um last year for myself and I'm not counting the the mountain goat call down in Wyoming because that was a wildly different, once in a lifetime, weird activity, volunteer activity for conservation. But um, the the days I got to hunt for myself last year were two, total. Damn. Uh, well, I take that back. I tried a little bear hunting in the spring for uh, 48 hours. Um, so. Uh, I, I just didn't have time. I, you know, I've got two kids, they have school stuff in the fall. Um, you know, they're not in sports, but they've got enough stuff that I need to be around during the week. And, yeah. um, I'm running an organization that will turn five here next month and it is running like it's 10 years old. So, you know, with the staff of one that's two years old. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm working 60 hour weeks typically. Um, and, and just have a lot of other things, the hunting part of it. I was talking with my dad about this the other day. We were, we were joking about it just last week. Um, the act of hunting itself has never been a driver for me. Yeah. Ever. Um, it, I mean, there's parts of it that I enjoy, but those parts of it can be done independently from hunting, um, so, you know, at no point in my life has getting the biggest animal been yeah. uh, a, a deciding factor. Um, you know, I've, I've never hunted for the horns. It's, it's just never been there. Yeah. I have passed. When I was a, when I was a teenager right before moving out my, my parents were doing well enough that it wasn't you know fill the freezer fill the freezer it was all right let's try to grow a couple bucks on the property and I say that and I mean he he shot some banger bucks when I was a kid He's got some racks that are just he's never had them scored and stuff but damn um, but it it was never a big driver so now to have it become one, is much less the thing. What's what's more interesting to me and a much more interesting pursuit is helping grow those animals Yeah, on a, on a landscape scale. So not grow one buck on a property, but try to have better habitat across an entire region for all the bucks and all the wildlife in that property. That's where my drivers are more than anything. And I, I don't see that, really changing, yeah. um, you know, and, and I say that having been fortunate to be on some absolutely monster animal hunts yeah. um, and seeing the reactions, you know, from buddies and family members when they do take that once in a lifetime animal. Um, and I do have, you know, in my in my house, I've got antlers on the wall and stuff,
0: but yeah.
1: it, was, it was more right place, right time than, you know, me pursuing a buck I named or something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that I I I'm always interested in the evolution of a specific hunter. Right? We talk about the uh, the guy who only you know he'll go out and he just wants to shoot a deer. He doesn't care what it is. He's going to shoot it. And then he's like, okay, well now I need to make this maybe a little bit harder. Maybe I only I want to shoot a buck. And then it goes from a buck to a a bigger antlered buck. Then it goes from a big antlered buck to the the one deer, right? I I have one deer on my hit list. That's the deer I want to kill. And then it goes from that to maybe this guy is older now, and then he gets uh, some land. And then he's now interested in the habitat management, keeping a buck on his property, um, you know, making the carrying weight of a property higher, a higher deer population, or whatever. And then it becomes almost to this point where they don't even care if they hunt anymore. All they really uh, do now is enjoy hunting with others and getting their children or their grandchildren uh, behind the bow or the gun, and 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 teaching them. And it's. Uh, it's an evolution that I find really interested, interesting in, and uh, I'm 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 not sure what point I am in right now. I think I'm still in like for me, my kids are somewhat young. It's an education, but at the same time, it is I'm still like gun ho about trying to kill like the top tier bucks on the property. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Uh, so my, you know, it's all it's always going to be a blend. You know, I I think of my, my grandpa, it was only eight or so years ago. Uh, He was out hunting with us and um, you know, he, when he would see a big buck, you could tell in his eyes when he, when he'd get back to, or, you know, when we go pick him up on the four wheeler at the end of the night or something like that, if he saw a dandy, you know, that there was a, there was a 10 year old kid popping out (laughs) of the, you know, Even though, even though, you know, he might only hunt a day or two, you know, in a season back then. So I think, I think there's parts that always stick around. And and to be clear, like there's, there's some hunts I really want to do. Like I I, want to go to Alaska. I want to do a float hunt, multi-species float hunt. Um, That's something I've wanted to do since I was real little. Um, And then there's species I'm super passionate about. You know, I want to, I want to see caribou be brought back. I want to see mountain goats, you know, thriving in every habitat they can be with the, the public actually knowing what they are and how they operate and what they need. Um, but with those species, my desire to hunt them is actually really marginal. Um, it's, it's there a little bit on like the, Hey, I should probably experience it. Um, you know, hunting them myself with me having the tag in the, in the pocket, but it's not, you know, my, my, uh, desire to, you know, try to, try to just get the biggest animal on the landscape it's it's never been there and i don't honest i honestly have a hard time relating to it because i've just never felt it yeah Yeah. um and and not you know i don't have animosity towards it i appreciate it and it and it serves a great value in conservation ethos but for me personally it's just it's just never been there
0: yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense man so let's uh let's finish this con this conversation strong and um And and talk about uh, what now, you know, we've laid the foundation of kind of who you are, you know, and and a lot of it, I think, stems from how you were raised and and your parents. But now also you with 2% for conservation, right? Where all of a sudden did you go from, hey, I want to, I don't want to help kids in a camp anymore. I want to do something on a bigger scale and I want to do this 2% for conservation thing.
1: Well, the kids with camps thing is still there.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: Uh, once, once you've seen someone, you know, experience the outdoors for the first time, and I mean genuinely, you know, have a have a, a brain shattering moment of connecting with the outdoors, you are chasing that high for the rest of your life. Yeah. Because there's few things like it. It's deep ingrained in us, you know, this this desire to teach another generation or or another person how to survive or how to understand the natural world around them. Like that's been in our DNA forever. And when you engage with that, it's, it is the worst drug because it will break you yeah. uh, both financially and, you know, <laughs> and relationally. Um, can't tell you how many breakups happened because I, I took a different job somewhere else uh, back in my dating years. So um, that part's always there. Um, in fact, I'm volunteering with a group right now on, on helping with a facility for a a outdoor education center for kids. So that, that part's always there, but the, the career transition honestly took a really weird detour. Um, I went from teaching outdoor education to, uh, the recession hit. And when the recession hit, I was driving out to Montana for a job in great falls. When I got there, uh, for that job where I would have been uh, basically a liaison between uh, this, this business and uh, the conservation causes and outdoor education causes they fund and doing company education on it. Nowadays, we call that like a conservation or uh, environmental outs, outreach director is you know a term that, that is for that. Well, when I showed up out here, uh, that entire management team had been let go and had been replaced by a new team because, again, recession they had no idea who I was and I had quit my job, left everything, you know, and (laughs) now I was out here. So I was, I worked at a mattress store, you know, um, I did the thing that a lot of millennials did when the recession hit, you just found work where you could, um, ended up teaching a bit more outdoor it again for a, a private, uh, golf club network. And, and by that, I mean, it's, this is like Wayne Gretzky and his family were some of the people we worked with. And, you know, you can name drop all day from a place like that. Uh, But, you know, worked with pretty high level people and their kids and discovered a lot of these kids, not Wayne's kids. He was really good to his kids. But, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of these kids are treated really, really poorly. And so I was back on that drug again, of taking kids outdoors, except this time, you know, they probably right now are wearing Rolexes and, driving around in Rolls Royces. Um, you know, whereas the other kids that I worked with, we hope they stayed out of jail. So, yeah. uh, well, with these kids, you can hope that too. In some <laughs> case. But, uh, went from that to, we were living in the Bozeman area and they wanted to keep moving us all the time. And we had just had our first and we just decided to stay here, uh, that we weren't we weren't going to leave uh, with the job. So I started working landscaping, Um, I worked uh, with my family's business for a bit remotely, Uh, started working with a lot of um, home uh, home industry, so like plumbing, electrical, HVAC uh, businesses, and my family's set a network of friends doing a lot of their online stuff for them, their marketing, their coding. I taught myself how to code, well, learned on the YouTubes and a couple other places how to code uh, during that time and do design and ended up having my own design company, uh, going into 2013. And it was in the fall of 2017 that I was approached, uh, by Newberg to Randy Newberg to go do an interview. And I thought it was for a design role within 2%. I had heard about 2%. I had signed up for 2%, uh, that, that follow or that previous summer, but that was because I just loved working with outdoor stuff. I had started teaching outdoor ed, like, or not, sorry, hunter's ed, like I had said. Um, and I had started signing up for different conservation groups and volunteering on their boards. And what got me to do that was seeing hunting opportunities degraded and angling opportunities just going away, um, seeing just absolute destruction in a lot of areas that I, you know, love to go hunt and fish or hike with my kids and stuff. Yeah. Started volunteering on different boards, and that's how I got to know Newberg. Um, And that's how I, you know, originally signed up with 2%, you know, 1% of time, 1% of income. I was like, well, my wife will believe the time part for sure, because I'm gone virtually every night of the week volunteering at some local fundraiser or public awareness night for a different outdoor issue. The income part she didn't know about yet. So we had to cross that very uh, sensitive bridge on how much I might be spending at banquets and pint nights and stuff. Um, and, and that's where the gear was randomly coming from, where all these raffles and <laughs> auctions I was getting involved with. Um, but when I showed up for the interview, uh, Jeff Sposito, who's president of our board said, no, 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 it's the executive director position for 2%. And <laughs> I looked at what you know, 2% could maybe pay me. And I had this moment of, You know, it was honestly, if you look back at that, that when I left home, you know, at 16 to go to a less stable income lifestyle, you know, in part, there was a whole lot of that going on with this transition again, Um, because, you know, I was just barely 30 um, and was finally making, you know, a, a reasonable six figure plus income off of my own business. Had just had my first year of, you know, really being independent that way on that. Um, And here came this job opportunity that would essentially cut my income into a third. Uh, And, you know, I still have two kids, but now I have a mortgage and stuff and all of that. And talked to my wife and we looked at what we wanted and, you know, what I was most passionate about and what I, you know, felt good at. Um, you know, despite having a successful business, it doesn't mean that you're happy doing what you're doing. Um, though there are elements of it, I still miss from time to time, but, uh, decided to go for it. And that was this fall. It'll be coming up on four years at the time. 2% had, uh, four business members. And now we have, uh, we'll be, we'll be hitting the hundred business member mark here soon. Um, but we have them in Australia, Scotland. Uh, we just added one in Montreal on Friday. Uh, we have them all over Canada, all over the U S doing all kinds of things. And like a thousand individual members who are all earning that membership. You can't buy it. You got to earn it by giving 1% of their time and 1% of their income to fish and wildlife where they live and in ways that are important to them. And my job is to help make that happen. And, man, it is the most rewarding thing I think I've ever been involved in.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome, man. So, you know, we've already had a a, a conversation. What I'm going to say at this point is if you want to go listen to more about what 2% for Conservation is about – you can search for it here on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, right? I've, I've had him on before. We, we actually get into the details about what 2% for Conservation is, how you can become involved. It's uh, very easy, and it's very worthwhile. Um, and now I, I, want, I just want to end it here. What is, what's on the docket for 2% for Conservation right now? I mean, I know this somewhat. But uh, what's the goal for, uh, you know, what's the goal? And then what, what's, uh, what's, what kind of irons are in the fire right now?
1: Well, our, our goal is a, a never-ending, you know, or, or a never-ceasing <laughs> of the moving of the goalpost. You know, um, I'll be happy when someone can do all of their shopping based on whether or not it has that 2% certified logo on it. No matter what store they're going to, Shopping online or otherwise uh, or what the product or service is I want everyone to be able to choose their repair guy based on whether or not He's the 2% certified repair guy in their community or choose from a multiple 2% certified repair guys in their community or what beer they drink Uh, as it is right now we have uh, We're up to seven. It's about to be nine uh, Certified coffee brands. So if you're not drinking 2% certified coffee, what you doing? (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, there's, I I want folks to be able to be making those decisions everywhere in life. So that goal is just always way out there with us running as fast as we can towards it. More short term, we really want to see more personal buy in from from individuals to have it be a lifestyle commitment. To, to not just have it be something that they do when they church hop between conservation groups like, well, I was a member of this association and now I'm a member of this. one. OK, you, you're just someone who's church hopping. You, you used to be Lutheran and now you're Baptist. Cool. Um, we want folks to take on personal responsibility for their local habitat. So we've been building programs around this beyond the certification. One of them is our Community Conservation Day. And it's, it's announcing this week on Wednesday uh, the dates for it, but I have a feeling this will pop up after that. So um, August 21st is Community Conservation Day. Last year we did it, and what it is, is is you can volunteer your time or dollars no matter where you live on that day, and you share it on social media that you are giving back that day. You could be at home signing up your buddies for all the different conservation groups you care about, you could be out doing a trail cleanup. You could be volunteering, doing aquatic species uh, you know, survey. Um, you could be teaching Hunter's Ed that day. There's a lot of classes that are going on in the fall that, honestly, we have such a massive, massive shortage of Hunter's Ed instructors. It's a phenomenal way to give back your time. Um, there's all these ways you could give back, and we'll be sourcing all these on our website. So if someone has an idea for doing a project, and they're like, I'm going to put one on in my neighborhood. I'd love to have folks join me or I'm doing it with this group on this day. It's sponsored by these folks. We're going to put that on a map on our website and folks can click through and it's going to be pretty sparse as we're, you know, just getting it off the ground. Don't expect like 50 up there right away. Uh, But folks can submit them right there. We'll add them to the map and we'll do plugs for your event leading up to it. So that on this day, August 21st, we have hundreds or thousands of conservationists giving back where they live Anywhere in the world, and if you're still in lockdown somewhere, you could totally do it just from you. You could be a keyboard warrior that day, you know, posting about the conservation causes you care about the most, or the habitat issues, or you know, writing. You could have a letter writing party or something like that for writing to your local lawmakers about wildlife issues. Lots of ways, and and we'll be helping provide more things for that. Uh-huh. We also, um, you know, to get conservation more in the mind of the general public. One thing we launched. Some years back now, back in 2018, was our conservation media award, which is an award that now has three categories. It has film and photo, uh, it has audio and written, and then it has a student category. But it's a media award to elevate media that talks about wildlife conservation, not just you know whack them and stack them, not just here's another product and here's why I love this product for my hunting, but actual content built around conservation issues and causes and stuff and our winners thus far on the film front have they've, they've all been bozeman um so that's that's uh even though the voting is all done by out-of-staters that still happened um we, we have jason matzinger steven Rennell, and randy newberg have won it the last three years but last year shane mahoney won uh, the audio written category nice and what we do with all this media is then we host it on our site so people can come and check that out and and check out you know this awesome stuff telling stories about wildlife uh, where that's often laid you know set aside or left behind
0: yeah.
1: so those are our two big things going on this summer the media award and the community conservation day we'd love folks to get involved with either
0: awesome well Mr. Frazier, man, I I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for uh, doing what you do with 2%. Thanks for coming on the podcast and BSing with me. And uh, I guess we'll be in touch.
1: Yeah, man. Sounds good. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I sure as shit enjoyed recording it. And um, man, just, I'll tell you what, a guy who's dedicating his life for conservation. Period. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm on the board of directors. The guy is not making a shit ton of money. He is giving back, right? He is working a ton of hours in order to make this uh, conservation organization work. He is working with everybody, everybody, every other conservation organization deer, turkey, uh, elk. Uh, waterfowl grass pollinators whatever he is in communication with these people and it's a big deal it is a big deal what he's doing and what this two percent for conservation uh is doing and even some of the other people that work for that uh for that organization they're 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 doing it right so uh there's that uh and i really do strongly suggest that everybody here take a look at the um Take a look at the, the the 2%, you know, the 1% of your time, 1% of your income. Uh, and if this is something right for you, one, one, one way that you can do this is go to fishandwildlife.org. Check it out. And I strongly recommend doing it. Uh, the Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for uh, conservation certified company. And it's just, it's just basically worked into our budget where I'm giving 1% of our revenue to the uh to the concert uh, to the organization or to a conservation effort and uh, that counts at that counts for my uh for my certification so take a look into it and other than that man i really appreciate all of you good vibes in good vibes out and uh, we'll talk to you next time